Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, we have another live Q&A, and I welcome a great panel of guests to answer questions about artificial intelligence and the industrial internet of things. The expert panelists this week are John Schultz, Ash Agarwal, Blair Frazier, Chris Colson, and Steve Doby. We talk about virtual sensors, we talk about how to pick the right sensors for your IIoT project, and we talk about turning that data into action. If your company sells products or services to engage maintenance and reliability professionals, tell your marketing manager about Rob's Reliability Project. I'm offering new advertising deals with the live webinar format. So if you're interested in learning more about those, send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com or reach out to me on LinkedIn. Lastly, I'd really appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and tell your colleagues about it as well. We've been picking up even though we've been on lockdown, so I'm hoping that continues. And lastly, check out my email newsletter at robsreliability.com. Sign up for it there. We cover more than just maintenance and reliability. I've been getting into a lot of stuff around leadership, around mental health, and around culture and connection. So definitely sign up for that. Every Monday morning, you'll get a new one from me in your inbox. I really appreciate you listening. I really hope that you and your family are safe during this tough time. Now here's a live Q&A. You know, everyone, thanks for joining us today. We're, we're back. Another episode of Rob's Reliability Project. This podcast or this webinar will be released as a podcast probably in... I think four or five weeks. I forget what my schedule is looking like. But anyways, we got some expert panelists today. So first off, we got John Schultz from Bootleg Advisors. We got Ash Agarwal from Uptake. We got Steve Doby from Tech Resources. We got Blair Frazier from Cortec.ai. And we have Chris Colson from Allied Reliability. So first, guys, thanks for joining us today. Good to be here. Thanks. Yeah, and the first question I, w- I wanted to kick off, the, the person who asked this actually asked it specifically to Steve, but I'd like to open it up to the floor. But Steve, you can take your first, first kick at it. And basically, it's how has this current situation of COVID and the lockdown affected your use of AI or the IAOT? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a really good question. So we... Um we were already on a path before all this started to try and uh, really improve our, our use of technology across our business. Uh, we have a program called Race 21. And essentially what it is, is we're, we're trying to digitize tech. And so we had a lot of ini- different initiatives that were, you know, we were, we were trying out and um, getting things ready for. And this has really kind of forced us to take some of those initiatives that were just kind of in their, their infancy and push them through a little further. So we've, we've been trialing different ways to have different types of people offsite, you know, dispatchers, um, asset health team, people, um, maintenance planners, all the, all those people have been moved remotely. And so we're all having to leverage our, our 
IIoT stuff, and we're, we're finding out pretty quickly where the gaps are, um, where we're surprisingly mature in the, that area as well. So there's, you know, there, there hasn't been a lot of uh, new developments recently, but it certainly made us try, try out a lot of stuff we had ready to go um, and prove that it's actually working. And I think for the most part, we're, as a company, we've still been incredibly effective uh, remotely which, you know, I've worked at other, other mining companies as well. And, um, a lot aren't set up to do that. So we're, we're, we're lucky in that respect. Cool. Yeah, no, that's really good. Blair, Blair, how about your customers? Have you seen it really shift at all? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people are seeing the impact of that. Uh, unfortunately, COVID-19 put us into this spot where those that, and, and we've heard this from analyst after analyst that those that adopt this type of digital transformation technology are going to reap the benefits faster, quicker, and more of it, right? And those people that invested ahead of this curve, not, not the only one who could have predicted this, not gonna get that debate, but we're seeing the customers that did pilot prior to what I'll call pre-COVID-19, they're seeing that success and wanting to scale that. And as Steve pointed out too, though, you're also seeing you know, those pitfalls that you couldn't have seen without these real life tests as well, right? So I think coming out of, post COVID-19 is um, we're going to see a more active community geared towards IOT and AI. And I think because what we were talking about earlier with Mary, the lack of resources, but now we, even the resources we have, we may not have access to them at the plant at that time. So I think we're going to see a twofold push into, into technology really playing a bigger role in, in how we maintain our asset management. Absolutely. Ash, how about you? What about uptakes customers? Yeah, we, we didn't see, <clears throat> like uh, like any responsible organizations, we were trying to plan our COVID response and see what, uh, what are the best case scenarios and worst case scenarios. And as uh, you all may empathize with that is that this period has given us a newfound empathy uh, towards others. And uh, what we have understood is uh, that our some of our customers are in real real situation where if they are multinational and in those countries, uh, the, the commodity that they're producing is not considered essential and they are forced to shut down. They really have a problem with cash flow and keeping the business solvent. Um, so it's not, it's not something that we see as a general trend. In general, all our customers are continuing. Uh, and I would echo Steve's comments is that uh, the pilot that has been done, uh, they are continuing really well, provided you have... Uh, you have demonstrated business value. So that way we have been fortunate. But for one or two customers who really see a challenge with cash flow, we have been able to support them with deferred payment and everything. Chris, you, you, know, you interact with a lot of customers that are doing their maintenance and reliability type projects. Man, have you seen any uptick or, or downturn in the IoT space? Oh, for, for sure. And, and very similar to what Blair said, we, we've had some of those customers that I'm, I've been working with that uh, over the past, uh, I would say, six to nine months where we've rolled out some, uh, some sensors, put some devices out in the field to be able to collect some of the information and get back and do some of the analysis. Um, and, and so they were ahead of the game a little bit, but our conversations with them have actually accelerated quite a bit in the last, I would say, four to five weeks, all because of this. And some of them, you know, again, we're finding that 
when they had to think about, okay, we are essential and we've been de uh, determined as being an essential supplier uh, to the marketplace. And they had to create some, some uh, social distancing rules for some of their technicians and who was going into the plant and how they could go and do some of the work that had to be done. Um, we were ahead in some of those areas to where even on some of the critical assets, we didn't have to worry about, hey, you know what, I've got to get my condition-based monitoring uh, personnel in there to be able to collect that data, and therefore it takes one of the operators out of the area. In those cases, we didn't have to do that. And so it has accelerated some of the conversations with them to think about other assets that maybe uh, you know are, are next on the list to be implemented. Those have been accelerated up, and, and we're already starting to uh, get some of those devices installed during this time period. Um, and then Rob, you know, some of the customers that are, you know, maybe have been deemed as non-essential, they've started reaching back out to us and saying, coming out of this, we talked about a smaller pilot. We'd like to accelerate that. What does that look like? How do we get started? So, um, you know, not, not in, in any sense that, you know, any of us would have wanted this, uh, predicament to, to, uh, be, you know, something we have to deal with. But um, for certain, when, when we begin to think about, you know, what does this world look like afterwards and what does our day-to-day -day involvement look like, I think this is going to have a huge impact and uh, it's going to accelerate those conversations. Yeah, I yeah, couldn't Mike. agree more. And I think for me, at least, I'm trying to see this as opportunity, right? And I think that a, a lot of leaders see it that way and, and that's where you're going to get this type of adoption happening. Now, John, you're kind of on the forefront in a lot of technologies. Do you see, like, what are you seeing out there? Well, a couple of things. Uh, one is that, uh, you know, everything that we're working on is trying to help enable AI and trying to help enable whatever it is remote, just because that's where we see a whole lot of the work going prior to COVID-19. Three interesting things uh, that I'd like to mention is one is on the flip side of what Ash had said, the challenges to the businesses that have been considered essential services in manufacturing is be careful what you ask for. Uh, you know, they, one, they're in wonderfully sold out markets if they're producing things like toilet paper, uh, <laughs> disinfectant wipes, hand sanitizer, food, alcohol sales and consumption are up 50% at least on my property. Uh, and so, you know, but the challenge that they have is there's also all these new rules of engagement and work rules coming down that pre-COVID weren't things that they had to worry about. How do I organize my workers into two to six person pods? And how do I make sure that each one of those pods maintains social distancing? How do I make sure that every time a tool is used that it is re-sanitized? How do I make sure that surfaces that normally only had to be decontaminated once per day now have to be decontaminated every two hours? And how do I track all of that so that if I do have a patient zero at my site, I have uh, the audit trail when the CDC comes in and decides whether or not this was just an isolated incident that I'm in control of or whether the CDC thinks they need to shut down my organization because of potential for widespread outbreak. Uh, the second thing I think I'm seeing is that a whole lot of hype and solutions that are now being asked to scale that cannot scale or that have challenges to their business model that they've never seen before. We're using one of them right now, Zoom. You know, and Zoom, Zoom is, you know, my, by far my favorite platform to participate on meetings like this. But the real challenge is when Zoom was being implemented by organizations with large IT staffs and security and all of that, 
scale beautifully as soon as all of a sudden it goes into every classroom and people are taking Zoom dance lessons and Zoom flute lessons and piano lessons. And you've got hackers out there, you know, Zoom bombing uh, individuals. Zoom wasn't designed with any of that in mind. So some platforms just didn't think through on security. Some didn't think through on what happens if the client actually ever wants to scale the solution. Their architecture was perfectly suited for pilot purgatory and cannot scale beyond that. And then the final one that, I, that ties back to the essential businesses is the fact that we're seeing new use cases. I'm finding, an, I found an organization that had amazing vision analytics platform uh, with machine learning and AI built into it that their primary use case pre-COVID was uh, security and surveillance. Now all of a sudden you integrate it with infrared thermography and with all the spatial distancing and machine learning algorithms and reporting they can do, they now have a full on COVID and social distancing uh, platform tool that opened up brand new markets to them that previously they never even thought of. <laughs> so we can, we can check on Ash's temperature on the Zoom call, right? <laughs> <laughs> So the, the, next, the next question that came in here, I thought it was a really interesting question. And so it came in and it said, how are people defining what asset data points are important for monitoring asset condition and what data quality frameworks are people using? Blair, do you want to give us your take on that one? Yeah, I can, I can take the next half hour and talk about that if you want <laughs> Um, so let me rephrase that question. So what, what data points are, are important, right? And um, so just for everyone's background, my background, although I co-founded a, a artificial intelligence company, it's not artificial intelligence, it's uh, maintenance and reliability. Um, so I'm going to speak a lot about that and the practicalities of that and where that comes in. So um, for me specifically, when we're starting a project for, for, I'll call it advanced analytics, whether you're using artificial intelligence or just other statistical models that are out there is linking it back to a failure mode, right? And, and we've, we've done well with that, with linking it back to a failure mode around vibration analysis, ultrasound and things like that. Um, so I think that's fairly, uh, fairly self-explanatory in terms of, you know, if you're trying to predict a bearing of health, ultrasound would probably be your best bet or something like that, right? Now we start to look at failure modes or assets that go away from say rotating equipment. Um, other complex bearing assets. And you, there's not like a solution for this type of asset. You know, there's not like there is bearing health monitors, but there's not on this particular asset. What do you do? How do you pick what sensors? So always start with the reliability fundamentals. I don't care whether it's RCM, FMEA, what, what other kind of techniques you do, historical analysis, do some of those to make sure you put your framework to understand what failure mode you're trying to address. Because if we've learned everything, anything over the last little bit is that typically there's not one sensor technology that can catch every failure mode possible. Right, so it may be a combination of sensors, and also consider you to look at the sensors you already have on those systems before you invest in additional sensors. There's no point generating more data just for the sake of having having data. And in terms of you know data quality framework, um, you know, and, and Mary was talking about this earlier before. There's a lot of standards. There's a lot of things out there in terms of um, data quality um, and what you're going to use to map out a, a data management system or, or program. Um, personally, you'll probably hear me reference this quite a bit. It's not really speaking to specific data quality, but it does give you, a, in my opinion, the, the best framework I've seen from an industrial point of view is called the Industrial Internet Consortium. And they have something called the Analytic Framework, and it's free. You can Google them now. 
um, Industrial Internet Consortium, or the IIC analytical framework. And I think to me that, has, that does the best job of laying out a framework from an analytical project all the way down from the data connection sensor type all the way to how you're gonna use that in, in one document. And I recommend starting there. Love it, love it, love it. John, how about you? What do you think about, you know, where should, like what should data frameworks look like and where should we be picking sensors? Well, the, the interesting thing, again, I, I, I would echo everything that Blair just said, because it really does boil down to, the, to, the, uh, to, to what failure modes are you trying to monitor. And my biggest thing here is make sure that the sensors that you're selecting are actually capable of doing, first and foremost, what the, the supplier says, buyer beware. We have tested 50 plus just vibration sensors alone. 70% of them don't even meet their own spec sheet. Uh, and then I also see an oversimplification model where a whole lot of people are out there selling condition monitoring, asset management, IIoT, and then you ask them what they're doing and they basically say, oh, vibration. And when you look at what percentage of the failure modes in a manufacturing facility are not covered by just pure play vibration, to be able to wrap and extend around all the other process variables and parameters and find new machine learning models that not only tell you that you have a defect, but that if you don't make these changes in the way you're running the process, that a defect will be introduced and be able to move up on that P to F curve, uh, I think is extremely important. So for me, it's a lot about from a data framework perspective, understanding what failure modes you expect to identify and then making sure that that sensor is actually going to meet your needs. Uh, I feel that one of the big differences between our community and pure play data scientists, our data scientists will sit there and say, give me all of your data that you have and let me see if I can have some, find some anomalies. Versus with standard rule-based engines, we can actually pre-train a lot of the machine learning algorithms with basic math as to what failure modes to actually look for and where within the PDF curve that, that failure mode is able to be detected. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, that's, that's, I mean, obviously we're, Mechanical engineers, so so that's how we roll. <laughs> but this is this is where you need that domain expertise, right? This is where you need the people who really understand the equipment or have been working with it for so long that they can detect, you know, the subtle differences and in, in the harmonics on a, a bearing, so to speak. You know, they may not be able to measure it precisely; they just know something is off. And I think if you can marry uh, that knowledge and insight with what technology can contribute to the scenario, you really have the perfect mix of an most accurate view of the actual root cause. Mary, you just took me back to 1992 <laughs> with uh, Sorry, one of- stuck in the 90s, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you took me, but no, but the reason why I say that, and it's in a very positive note, you took me back to 1992 because I still remember I had the lead mechanic for all of all of my uh, all of Eli Lilly and company that all of the other skilled tradespeople looked to, and he did not believe in vibration analysis. He believed he could find anything with uh, with simply a screwdriver in his ear. <laughs> and so we went out and and we went ahead and uh, selected fifty bearings, some of which had problems, some of which did not. Uh, we had him go around and identify the ones that he thought he could identify uh, with the screwdriver and his domain knowledge and expertise. And then we put airborne structure board and ultrasound on it so he could actually hear it. And his answer to that was, oh, I just need a longer screwdriver. <laughs> Tune the screwdriver. <laughs> yeah, I, I had the same screwdriver conversation with a guy, probably 96. It was like that. 
So I, I would say in addition to that, also considering what your output's going to be, because I've seen a lot of people get way down in the weeds on vibration analysis. And I'm a big fan of it, right? In terms of inner race defect, outer race defect, and, that, and that's great. Um, but in terms of using it for analytics, if you just want to know something is going wrong and generally at what rate is going wrong, do you care if it's an outer race defect, inner race defect? Chances are, and I'm, I'm generalizing here, but generally you're saying, I'm going to replace that bearing. I'm going to get up and running. Then I'm going to figure out why I went bad and how I stopped that from happening. Right? So there's a lot of, lot of, again, it's, I'm really going against generating more data unless you don't have to. Right? At least the latest study I use says 97% of manufacturing data is not being used, but yet we felt we feel compelled to generate more data, right? We're trying to get that number up when really we should be turning it down, right? So if you can get more value for what you want as as an output with limited data or, or reduce that amount of data, then I think that's better. And that was actually just like riffing off that, Blair. That was actually a question that came in was they asked, you know, how do I justify putting sensors on equipment that doesn't fail? And <laughs> like, well, that's so do you need to put sensors on? That's the question, right? It's, 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 it's going to Congratulations, depend. I mean, you have an that doesn't fail. <laughs> I mean, it depends. What is, well, the, what is the cost of, what's the cost of failure? Yeah. Right. I mean, if, it, if, if that thing failing has an, un, un, uh, an unacceptable consequence of failure, you may choose to instrument something just as a protection system so that it never does fail. So for instance, the most critical piece of equipment that we had in one of our bulk pharmaceutical manufacturing plants back in the day was a, a fractional horsepower pump with motor combination that did the final uh, purified water wash of the oral antibiotic. If that pump or motor failed during that final wash, you were talking about tens of millions of dollars of factory loss. So was it, would it be worth today to put on an extra $200 sensor to avoid tens of millions of dollars of factory loss? You're darn right it is. But in other instances, uh, that's where asset criticality comes in, understanding your failure mode, certainly failure history plays into that asset criticality conversation. But also I find that people will also lull themselves with the false sense of security because they have all this tested measurement on an asset. And then when you sit down and you show them all the failure modes that none of that technology actually gives them any coverage for, they're absolutely just blown away. Uh, so it really comes down to having a monitoring strategy that's balanced with the asset criticality and the impact on the business if it fails. Yeah, I, I just wanted to offer a slightly contrarian view on the first point, first question about uh, uh, what, as, what sensor should I implement on my, my, my machines? And the way uh, we have seen this, and I'll just take it uh, from an AI perspective, from an IIoT perspective, and uh, completely agree with Blair, John, and Mary what they said about it's important for the failure modes and everything, reliability thing apart. From an AI perspective, what we try to deal with across the globe, we have, we have dealt with customers who have different degree of instrumentation on their assets, uh, starting from like BHP, those who have cameras near the rail track and everything, all the way to the underground mine, where the sensors are a luxury and they don't really have those. Uh, it's a common thread, common fear, that probably my machines are not as instrumented as I want them to be if I have to leverage AI, if I have to increase the life of those machines, if I have to increase their productivity, the way I, I try to see this is from an AI perspective, with due respect to everything uh, Blair and, and John has said, um, 
It's about finding out the, the value AI can deliver with the present sensors and finding out the differential that you can get if there is another sensor available in dollars. If the machine can be made available for five more percent with the existing sensors, and that is good enough for you, considering the upstream machines and the downstream machines, great. But if you think that the additional 5% increment of AI uh, by AI is not sufficient, the, the AI project should tell you exactly what tags, what frequency, and what value it will give you if you end up deploying sensors. So to John's point, if it's a tens of millions of dollars benefit with $200, it's a no brainer. You exactly know. So that, that's something that we are currently doing with a, with a large mining company in Canada, underground mining company. Uh, we told them what they can get with the existing sensors and we told them what they can get uh, if they install four more tags, four more sensors and what frequency. To second point about uh, uh, installing sensors on the machines that don't fail, right? So intuitively you, you might say, hey, why are you installing sensor just for the sake of it? Um, we, we worked on a sag mill project it's a semi-autogenous grinding mill, uh, 36 feet wide diameter, 36 megawatt machine. And that machine really never failed for like once, one failure every two years. But when we went and investigated, there were so many things that you can, you can do if you have other sensors. For example, you can optimize the cost of production of that machine. You can optimize the, the consumption of the wear parts and other consumables. And as John mentioned, increasing reliability of such large piece of equipment is also important. You don't want that to have a predictive alert for every failure, but you also want an assurance that I won't have those once in a blue moon kind of failure. So for example, you can install uh, microphones around that machine that will hear the balls at, uh, hitting the ore. If the, the noise changes, something is wrong and the operator can take action. So there are very different use cases. It should not be taken as a digital yes and no uh, uh, about adding sensor to the machines that don't fail. I think oh, another really interesting uh, caveat, uh, point on, to, uh, on what Ash just said is also don't underestimate with IoT and AI the ability to put in virtual sensors. So you've got yeah. a suction and you got a discharge, but you don't have a delta P. Well, yeah, you do. Yeah, uh, exactly. You can actually start deploying virtual sensors that may actually be far more telling than the actual sensors that are actually installed on the machine. That's 100% right, John. I completely support that. Uh, we, I actually have an example because we were looking for the weight of this machine, 36 foot wide, um, 36 megawatt, and we did not have weight sensors installed. So we back calibrated with the pressure, the hydraulic pressure on which this machine is loaded. So th that was uh, uh, about the virtual sensor, yeah. Love it. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, I mean, I deal right now a lot in, in sort of the risk management-esque type of side, and it's all about value, right? It's all about risk mitigation. So if the asset doesn't fail, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no value in having a sensor there. But also, like, what you said, Ash, is absolutely correct, is like, maybe, like, I know, Blair, we've talked about it before, is the value doesn't all come from failure prediction. I don't know if you want to right. comment on that. Uh, yeah, well, I think, yeah, so the idea, and, and, and I imagine Ash can get into this too, is, is you know, that 
everyone wants to get to remaining useful life, which I think is, is, is a great spot to get to, right? My, my bearing is going to die in three days, 60, I was going to say 62 minutes, but that math is not correct on that. Right. <laughs> but that, that's, that's where we're trying to get to. And, and, and I think, you know, when you're starting to do these analytics projects, starting when I, when I mentioned starting with the end in mind is it's all about answering questions and, and defining what question you're trying to answer is the biggest part of that problem. So when is my asset going to fail? It's a great question to ask and wouldn't we all like to know that, but really to get to where you want to be, the better question in my opinion to ask, and this is a general statement, but the general, the better question might be, is my asset going to fail in the next 30 days or not, right? Or the next 60 days or something like that to get to those type of answers before you can get to exact calculation unless you've had that specific failure. And we can get into stuff like machine and machine learning and, and things like that. But the problem with linking it specifically to, to maintenance and reliability of failures is are two failures exactly the same, right? And those type of things you got to look at as well. Um, so I, I think, you know, we were trying to get to that failure prediction, but even, even detecting, hey, this component of this asset is starting to be anomalous and it's leading to this amount of risk on your equipment, right? We don't know what it is, but it's starting to be anomalous, can, can provide value versus saying it's going to die in this, this amount of time, right? So kind of taking it to, in, in baby steps, I think is a logical way to do these type of projects. Beautifully, Blair. I, I think I completely agree with that. Um, what I've found very helpful for the mine, mine operator, at least mine operator, is that um, if, we, if you ask them what your day-to-day -day workflow looks like, how much lead time is important for you to put that prediction into your uh, PM schedule Th that works for them. For example, if they have a weekly meeting to review all the tasks to put them into a work order, uh, if you give them an alert eight days or nine days in advance, they, they get pretty happy about it. Steve, Steve, do you want to comment on that? Like we often, we often talk about, you know, closing the loop. Like we get these anomaly detections or we, whether that's regular, um, from regular inspections or pre regular predictive maintenance or whatever, but how do you actually like, how does that planning and scheduling work on your end? Yeah. Closing the loop, you know, for, for most mining companies is, is tough. Um, like part of this digitization, uh, everything we do is still more or less pen and paper today. And that feedback loop, yeah, the, the paper goes back up there. Sometimes they take a look, they'll bring out their, red or green pen, whichever color it is. And then, then they might make a change to the, to the template or, or whatever, but there's no real, um, that, that I've seen anyways, good way to close that loop at this point. Um, now, once you start getting your, your PMs and inspections done on tablets and phones, then that feedback can be instantaneous. And you really want to make sure that, uh, like I've had a lot of initiatives where somebody is giving me feedback on something, um, and I say, okay, thanks. I make the change, but I don't tell them. I never get any more feedback from them because they don't think it ever happened. So that closing the loop, and it's not just about, you know, taking that feedback and doing something with it. It's about also communicating to those guys on the floor that, yes, we took your feedback. It was good. We did something with it. Or somehow having a feedback system. And, like, I've started exploring a lot of different softwares that do this where you can actually – you know, it says this user gave you this note and you can comment on it back to them. It takes maybe a minute, but you keep that conversation flow going. Um, today in the mining world with the pen and paper, where most people are, 
not easy to do not going to work well especially right now because me and most other reliability engineers are not at site um we're, we're talking to their supervisors to go and talk to them so it's it's certainly not easy but once you get these tools the closing that loop should be a lot easier yeah i i absolutely agree um and and you know we talked just a little bit earlier ago i, I told you about kind of some of the acceleration of the discussions that we'd had with some of our customers and i think blair alluded to this in one of the comments that he made um, you know, just because I can get more data doesn't really mean that, you know, I should go after that. And look, I'm an electrical engineer. I love to have data. I love to dive into that. Right. And so a lot of you guys are talking about the mechanical side and the rotating equipment. I, I geek out just as much on the electrical and there's a lot of information. Right. And but regardless of, you know, how much information I get, what does what do I do with that? How does it change my behavior in the field to be any better? or optimize the organization to reap any of the benefits that they've invested in any of these uh, devices, whether it's uh, you know number of sensors, whether it's a new uh, platform, uh, any of the analysis software that, that might be there that, that we would use, and that's all great stuff. Um, but we've got to understand that to execute work, we've got to be able to plan it, we've got to be able to schedule it, and we've got to be able to execute good, precise type of work to really get any benefit out of any of this. It's not about detecting and getting all the goody out of all the equipment and knowing that, hey, I got down to that last minute. I don't think any of us would, would advocate that. But um, you know, when, when I talk to our customers about, great, I'd love to, love to help you with that IoT transformation and getting into more of that, those type of installed sensors, what are we gonna do to change? What are we gonna do to actually reap the benefit are we going to get into that work execution management cycle where we look at the planning and the scheduling and bringing that back into, because if we're not doing that, you know, we're going to miss out on the, on the real value of doing any of the work. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And, and maybe just the last question before we, I, I would like to ask a question about, you know, how do you learn this stuff? But before we get to that, maybe Chris, I'd like to ask you, like, what do you think about, like what foundational elements do people need in place before they can start doing this type of transformation? Um, I, I wouldn't say before, uh, but it has to be worked in, in parallel, right? And so we, we talk about foundational elements. And when I say we, you know, the organization I work with, Allied Reliability, and some of those foundational element, elements are, you know, what do I have? What are the, what are the equipment? Uh, what type of equipment, what are the components, the parts that make up that equipment, all to get back to what Blair and John alluded to before. What is the failure? What am I trying to identify? And do I already have a lot of sensors out there, PLC sensors or other type of operational type controls that are going to get me some of the information that I can couple with vibration analysis, ultrasound, uh, even some of the National Electric Testing Association uh, type uh, things that we do from an electrical uh, perspective, looking at all of that data, but really driving at foundational elements from a, you know, here's my equipment, here's how it fails, here's the criticality of that equipment, and here's how I'm going to start deploying. And, um, and that could be, while, while I try to shy away from that, that term pilot, right, get the strategy, <laughs> understand that that strategy might be lots of different installations of the most critical devices, and maybe some of those that it's just, it's nice to have, and because it's right here in that same area, and I can throw on that $100, $200 sensor, I grab it because I have, it's right, you know, in the neighborhood of some of the others, but foundational elements really getting back to failure modes. How does it fail? What am I going to do with the data? And then how am I going to, from an organizational standpoint, really capitalize on that by executing corrective work? 
Love it. Love it. Love it. Now I do want to ask this question because I've, I've been asked numerous times. Um, so the first one I got, please recommend a good book or some sort of learning platform to learn AI and about the IOT. Does anyone have any, any platform or any knowledge sources, anything to share? Uh, the one, the one I did there, Rob, you actually put me onto that one was the, uh, uh, machine learning course on edx.org. Yeah, it was really well laid out. You don't need to have a lot of uh, background in in the subject to actually start getting into it. It does say you need a bit of Python, um, but I had a little bit of programming back from university, and it was fine. <laughs> a long time <laughs> <And> ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, it, like for any anybody that's working on a computer, they should be able to handle that one. I'd say. Um, and it gave you, it gives a really good background on, on the machine learning tools out there. Yeah. That, I mean, just for people listening out there, that one is edx.org. It was a free, free course from Microsoft. Um, and it was pretty, I thought it was pretty good. Again, I hadn't, hadn't done Python before either. Um, yeah. So anyone else? Resources? Uh, I was going to say, go, go ahead, Georgia. I was, Mary, I was just going to say uh, the Microsoft uh, one that's showing up on edx.org, that's one that we're featuring through the CSI as well. They have a level one, two, and three. That's uh, pretty effective. Yeah. I was also going to say there's a uh, there's an amazing person to follow on LinkedIn, which is Lillian Pearson, who's Data Mania. Uh, and uh, she has almost 400,000 followers. And for a data scientist and AI person to have 400,000 followers, on LinkedIn is nothing short of miraculous. And she has a ton of very low cost and free learning. So if you're wanting to learn Python fundamentals and you're just wanting to learn about modeling, uh, Lillian has some unbelievable content uh, that you can get through her site. And then the other one that I was going to say is that thanks to my son, uh, after getting a degree that he couldn't find a job in, uh, then getting a nano degree in augmented and virtual reality through Udacity. I've become a big fan of the nano degree and uh, Udemy and Udacity and others have uh, where you can go in and get a certification nano degree in 90 to 120 days, very project based, typically for less than two grand uh, and actually has some credentials to go along with it. And uh, he took himself from a market where he could probably make a maximum of $35,000 a year if he could find a job to completing a nano degree and uh, having multiple people uh, trying to get him to work for them and, uh, you know, coming in at 65 to 70 grand a year. And so uh, I think there's also just some interesting ways that you can invest in yourself. There's low, there's no cost and then there's low cost. The data mania, Udacity, Udemy, and some of those micro and nano degrees are something that I'd highly recommend. Yeah, I've, I've seen one from, I think it was Coursera. It's Andrew Ng. He's one of the leading data, deep learning guys in the world. And I think it's only like a couple hundred bucks to take it. So it's, it's pretty reasonable. Yeah. I have studied that one. And uh, just so you know, uh, I started a master's course in machine learning and AI just to get a flavor of it. And by far, I like Coursera course much better than the, the university books that they recommended. Uh, <laughs> honestly, the, the, the academics hasn't really caught up on the, the recent development. So rather than prescribing a book, I would rather go for just like uh, 
John mentioned uh, is about uh, the nano certification, nano, nano sources. They are more updated. They keep you abreast of. And they force you to actually apply it and use it, which is the way you really learn. That's right. <laughs> but I, I would just caveat one thing is that uh, we think, we try like to think is that if, I am, if I'm able to build a code that predicts a failure in my machine, that's my job done. In, in a real life, it is not more than 5% of the work that is needed to deploy an AI model on, on a machine. Not more Ash, than 5%. That's, that's a really great point. Like you can build all the model, models in the world you want, but if you can't deploy it, they're, they're useless. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and <laughs> two different ball games. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, sometimes uh, my team has to rebuild the whole code again before productionalizing because a computer data science model doesn't really productionalize. You yeah. can't really deploy it. Um, and to ingest all those different kinds of data sets, um, sensors data, work orders, fault codes, oil analysis, they're all different frequency, different times. And it's teaching them together, making sense together. And, and as um, uh, Steve mentioned earlier that there's still pen and paper being followed for the work orders and everything. You have to apply natural language processing to read through it and then make sense of it because sometimes the operator, they don't have any incentive to write what went wrong exactly. And they sometimes <laughs> write wrong. Um, and if you're talking about 95,000 rows, it's humanly impossible to clean that. So the cleaning of that data is, is really, really big deal. Anybody who is going to go out there and learn about AI and IoT, machine learning is definitely a step but don't be blindsided by machine learning itself. There is a hell lot of things that you need to learn about data cleaning, data ingestion, data normalizing, structuring, and deploying things on the platform. And I'm not even talking about software yet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, one, one of the other things I want to mention there too is, uh, you know, I, me being a reliability engineer, I, I go out and I, I look for these tools. Um, and a lot of people do come out with, yeah, we got this great tool that does this. And then that deployment piece really is where people get stuck. So like if you can focus your training on bridging that gap, like there's a lot of great data scientists out there, but there's not a lot of people that can bridge the gap to bring it from a data scientist to a tradesman on the floor. Um, like that's where I try to focus a lot of my learnings um, and make success every time. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you teach that? You know, how do you teach that? How do you can how do you take what's in the head of all of you guys and put it in a format that's consumable by somebody you're trying to teach to take it on? Or are they always apprentice out in the world of these sorts of projects until they have practical experience to draw on? Is that the only way to teach it? What are your thoughts? I mean, for me, Mary, I think it's it's one of those characteristics that makes us these, well, makes us these quasi-successful reliability engineers, right? It's that culture piece. It's the people piece. And I think it, it's, it's hard to teach it. I mean, you can learn about culture, but at the end of the day, it's about making relationships with people. And, you know, like a lot of the work that Steve's done over the last few years, it's really been basically like a lot of effort around going out there, talking to people, you know, buying donuts, doing the whole, that stuff. And I'm not sure, I mean, you can teach elements of it, but I'm not sure you can teach it like in a course. One of the things, 
Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, Sorry. Uh, you, you know, Mary, that's a great, great question. And I think it's, it's uh, one of the most fundamental questions when you think about industrial IoT or industrial AI is how do you deliver what's on your computer screen to a guy who has spanners in hands and he has spent like 40 years on a machine. The last thing he wants to see is a 20 year old kid coming with a computer telling them what to do. The last thing that they want to see, right? And it's, it's important to think about the trust in AI. Think about how the user will trust the prediction that they will give. Trust is a fragile thing. Once broken, it's very hard to recover. Mm -hmm. if, they, if they see too many false positives, if they follow you and take their machine to workshop and the machine wasn't failing, is what it was okay, that's a loss. That's a loss of credibility. They have a lot of things to do. They're incentivized to keep working eight hours. They're not incentivized to test your technology. So one thing very clear, we have to be extremely careful and conservative before giving them any in advice. Now, in terms of advice, what, what I personally try to do is not just telling them that your machine might fail in 15 days. That doesn't tell them anything. Okay, what, what, what should I do? I should just not, not work it or take it to the workshop and rip it apart? No. What component and what they can do about it? So it is leading towards the prescriptive analytics is really your machine number X component number Y may fail within 15 days. And this is the action you can take. And definitely it takes to your last point. Uh, the point you made previously is that it takes a combination of subject matter experts, uh, experts from the site and, and reliability people. And I'm fortunate that we have in, in our company, we have uh, people like Derek who is, who is on the webinar today. <laughs> so a couple, couple of things that I would say with regards to that one is that one of the more interesting things that I'm starting to see AI be applied to is to be able to enable that frontline worker and the whole concept of micro-credentialing and upskilling the workforce. The ability to be able to, for the AI to learn the worker over time and know how much instruction they actually need in order to do it and then being able to recompile the AI after every job is completed so that down to the task level you can, you can find what additional content and what additional training do I need to invest in what workers? Uh, and so that's one of the more fascinating areas that I'm starting to see AI applied. The other thing I wanted to go in, mention briefly to talk, to capitalize on what Ash just said, my favorite book of all time <laughs> is The Speed of Trust by Stephen yeah. Covey. And the reality of the situation is when it comes to organizational, whether it's organizational change the reason why 80 to 90% of all digital transformations fail is not because of the technology. It's because of lack of governments, leadership, change management, employee engagement. Uh, the other one I like on that same, like the, the soft skills definitely are huge, uh, hugely required to get it done. Uh, one of the courses I took to address that was uh, the art of negotiation it has nothing to do with AI or IOT, but the, <laughs> the skills that he talks about in there and my favorite quote from the whole thing is be hard on the problem, not on the people. A lot of, a, a lot of people trying to implement this stuff, take things very personally when somebody's not on board, you got to remember that they're not, they're not against you. They're just trying to make sure their job is going to be easier. Um, and you got to remember that, you know, like I said, it's not that personal attack. <laughs> 
Absolutely. So, yeah. so yeah, that's a great point. We got to wrap up here. So plugs, Steve, do you have anything to plug? Uh, no, just by Cole. By Cole. Build steel buildings. Yeah. Uh, Chris, how about you? Anything to plug? Well, I'd have to plug my employer, Allied Reliability. Um, but but no, seriously, um, take a look at all of the uh, the podcasts that are going on, and the and take advantage of all the uh, opportunities that we have to uh, kind of chime into. Um, all of us are kind of getting inundated quite a bit with some of the emails that are coming out. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I've got a webinar next week that I'm going to give about you know starting you know with your maintenance program and building that from the ground up and talking about some of those foundational elements, but take advantage of many of these opportunities you have now, uh, as well as get involved in more of the continuous improvement type work that your organization is doing. Um, be a part of that culture as we come out of this. Love it. Thank you, Chris. Ash, anything to plug? Yeah, I would just say, just highlight John's point because it was so massive. I would just steal it from him and say <laughs> tr trust. IIoT and industrial AI, a lot of projects fail just because we don't think about trust. Change management, if you, if you decide I'm going to start my change management, you have already failed. If you haven't figured out that a change happens from the conceptual, conceptual stage where you have to engage, you have to include people who are supposed to deliver results. Like technology doesn't do anything unless some people do something with technology. <laughs> and, and those people happen to be, as Steve mentioned, the people, those who have boots on the ground, those who don't really understand technology, so there, there is a gap. And if we fill those gap too late in the cycle, we already failed. Trust and change management should be part of your canvas, not part of your delivery. Love it, love it, love it. Ash, thanks for joining us. John, anything to plug? Thank you for having uh, me. Couple, couple quick things. Number one is I, I would be remiss if I didn't plug uh, mine and Chris Colson's change management Sherpa, Mike Aroni. Uh, if it wasn't for Mike, we would both still just be engineers that uh, just continue to bulldoze over everybody with technical content and detail uh, without realizing that uh, if, there, if, if no one else is following, what the hell are we leading? Uh, so uh, Mike Aroni would be a great future guest on leadership, change management, employee engagement for your job. Uh, then the second thing to plug is Monday, 1 p.m. Eastern time, uh, I start my new podcast, Bootlegged Innovations on Voice America. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to it. Episode number one uh, is next Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And I have as guests uh, both uh, Marshall Van Elstein as well as Andy Kemp. Uh, Marshall was the author of the book, Platform Rev The Platform Revolution, talking about platform economy and how platform and platform economics is changing everything and why some platforms fail while other, why other platforms are, are wildly successful. And then Andy Tim, uh, he and I are kind of cohorts in crime with regards to working collaboratively uh, with his company, Crucible Works. Uh, he helps connect me to amazing technology all the time. He was a former CTO for, uh, for PTC. Love it, love it, love it, John. Thanks for joining us. Blair, how about you? Anything to plug? Um, yeah, obviously, Cortec.ai, um, really focusing on bridging that gap, as Steve mentioned, between data scientists and engineers, try to make everyone is what's being called a data scientist. And also, um, if anybody has any additional questions, again, strictly from a, a practitioner point of view on artificial intelligence, um, I'm most reachable on, on LinkedIn if you just want to hit me up and we can continue any of these conversations. Love it. Thanks, Blair, for joining us. My pleasure.
Subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform. Follow me on LinkedIn for the best memes in the industry. And thanks for joining us today. Nice job, Rob. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Thanks, Rob.